Thank you, Roland, and thank you, uh, Adam, from wherever you are. And um, I do just want to make a quick comment. It's Facebook official, so I can talk about it. If you don't know already, uh, the Goddards have accepted a job in Japan, and so they'll be moving back there uh, within a couple months. And so uh, I say that to say that, one, obviously Adam has a wonderful heart and uh, soul towards people. Erin uh, is one of the sweetest ladies I know, and then Ava and Gideon obviously are awesome. So we will miss them, but I invite you to reach out to them uh, over the next couple of months, encourage them, and uh, be praying for their future. <sighs> it's an interesting thing whenever we get people together, and I don't just mean people as far as people that are non-family members or members of a congregation or any organization, but, I mean, just any two people together at all. The fact that there are so many different kinds of personalities, so many different ways of communicating, so many different perspectives that one can have, it's amazing things like churches and families and even marriages work. And actually, it's a marriage story that I want to start out with this morning. No, not from my own marriage. Don't worry, dear. You are gorgeous this morning, dear. By I'm seeing Amy in a couple hours. Oh, people. That's right. Um, <laughs> I was, sorry. She's going to be distracting me the whole sermon now, which is okay. It's not from my marriage. But this is a uh, couple which, uh, they're from a long way away from here and a long time ago, and they actually know that I actually use this story uh, when I do uh, marriage work and marriage things. There was a couple which, uh, they, they were busy, they both worked full-time, they had two kids, and there came a point in their marriage to where it seemed every single night they were having a fight about something. And it, it never seemed to be the same thing, and, and so they actually came to see me, and we worked on some, some skills, and we narrowed it down to the fact that the fight revolved around the dishes being done every night. So we decided to investigate this. I said, all right, go home and pay attention to what happens. And they came back the next week and said, we have no idea. All we know is that the dishes start being, and then we, we blow up. So we invested some more time and talked through some things, and it came down to the fact that both parents, for whatever reason, wanted the dishes done after dinner. And so the obvious solution was like, all right, we'll go home and make sure that the dishes were done after dinner. They came back the next week. We still had a fight every night. Okay. It took another three weeks of talking through things before we realized that the issue was not about the dishes. The issue was about the dishes. You see, the wife's perspective of doing the dishes was that everything was clean, dried, and put away. The husband's perspective of doing the dishes was most of them are clean, most of them are put away, some of them are dried, and if there's some in the uh, strainer or the sink, that's okay. For whatever reason, this caused a fight because one person would insist upon one way and the other person would be like, what, I did it, and it would cause conflict. So eventually we figured out that's the cause. They end up taking turns and had to figure out, okay, I just have to be okay with the other person's definitions. And actually, in the months later, they actually got better communicative because they learned to think of the other person. The other person would want to do it the other person's way out of love, and the fight went away. So why do I start with a marriage story this morning? Well, because marriages, among many other things, any type of relationship, show us that oftentimes 
It's not even about the issue we think it is. That causes either conflict, stress, tension. It's often about how we approach the subject, how we talk about the subject, or what our intentions are towards the subject. I want you to think on that as we do a quick review of where we've been so far. We've been in Matthew chapter 6, and from the first few verses of almsgiving and prayer, we looked at the fact that Jesus is talking about that we should not be deceivers. Deceivers of whom? Deceivers of our intention, of others, but also of ourselves. Meaning that we can even deceive ourselves into thinking that our actions and what they're for is for God, when in fact they are not. The whole point of almsgiving and fasting in the Lord's Prayer is the fact that we are to engage God directly as God has engaged us. He engages each of us with the Holy Spirit. He engages each of us in our lives, each of us in our relationships. Therefore, we engage Him directly and give Him directly the glory and honor and focus of our worship. Therefore, anything that turns that focus away from God is hypocrisy. Anything that turns that focus away from God is what Jesus... Excuse me, is what Jesus is talking about giving for the sake of being seen, praying for the sake of being heard. And the Lord's Prayer refocuses then a couple things of for us in that regard. It focuses, one, our very prayers in the fact that it's not about what we say in front of others or not about what the, uh, what the end result of our prayers are, but the prayers that be focused on you, meaning God, and we, meaning others. Lord's Prayer also refocuses our motivations into you, God, and we, meaning others. Not about ourselves, not about our focuses, our intentions, but also refocuses our desires into desiring what God wants, and therefore what God wants for others. This is where we more or less ended up. So we come to the last little bit of the first section of chapter 6, which is about fasting. Adam read it earlier, but I'm going to read it again, once again from the ESV. He says, When you fast, do not look gloomy like the hypocrites, for they disfigure their faces that their fasting may be seen by others. Truly I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you fast, anoint your head and wash your face, that fasting may not be seen by others, but by your Father who is in secret. And your Father who sees in secret will reward you. Fasting is not something that's talked about very much. Uh, there are some new dietary fads which talk about intermis- intermittent fasting, which I've heard various things about. I'm not a medical doctor or a dietitian. I'm not going to talk about those things. Uh, Mark's daughter could probably talk. Uh, Mark and Nancy's daughter could talk more about them. I'm not. I'm going to talk about the biblical perspective of what we generally think fasting is for. There are two kinds of fasting. One is called instrumental, and one is called responsive. Generally, in what I've heard from churches and Christians, we tend to think about fasting in terms of the instrumental way of fasting, which is we do it in order to gain something. We do it in order to gain clarity, in order to gain focus, in order to gain a greater relationship with God, in order to to gain a more pious attitude, in order to gain something, in order to gain the benefits. And this is often where the medical side, as far as I know, talks about fasting to gain something in order to gain weight loss or focus or something of that nature. The important thing is, whatever it is, you're fasting in order to gain something. This actually is not the kind of fasting that is found anywhere in Scripture. What is found in Scripture is responsive fasting, which, like the name says, 
is fasting in response to something. What are the things that are seen in Scripture about that people fast in response to? Well, a couple of things. Obviously, death. We think of David when his uh, son with, with um, Bathsheba was sick after Nathan proclaimed judgment. That was from sin. Um, war pronounced as fasting, neediness, judgment. These are just a couple of things. But biblically, what we oftentimes see is something happens or something is looming in the future and the people in the Bible fast in response to it. Now, I'm going to not quite contradict myself a little bit, but remember I said that instrumental fasting was to gain something. What I meant by that, it was to gain something tangible, gain something physical, or gain something emotional. Responsive fasting is in response primarily to something, but it also seeks to gain something. But this is the big difference. Responsive fasting in these times is almost always used to gain a godly perspective on whatever it is that you're responding to. How does God feel about your sin? How does God feel about death? How does God feel about the impending war? How does God feel about what you need judgment on? How does God feel about the neediness? And also what this does is that fasting is meant to ask the question, who is God and how would he respond in this case? So it's a subtle difference, but it's an important one. Instrumental fasting is used to gain something usually tangible, usually something physical. You have an explicit goal. This is why I'm fasting, to gain such and such. Responsive fasting is almost always two things. In response to something in life, and it's always to ask the question, who is God and what is his perspective on whatever it is that I'm fasting towards? So, let's look at that in three instances. We look at the Day of Atonement where fasting was uh, talked about an instrumental, both for the high priest as well as Israel. What is the Day of Atonement? It was the day to which all of Israel's sins were declared before God and God wiped them clean. Fasting was always then in response to Israel's sin and asking of themselves, what does God expect of us? What does God need from us in order to wipe clean our sins? And what does God expect from us going forward? We see this spontaneously, as I've already mentioned, David in response to his son being sick, but also David for his enemies in Psalm 35. The important thing with David is that every time he fasts, he's always even subtly gaining God's perspective on his situation. His son with Bathsheba was out of sin. His response in Psalm 35 is enemies and judgment. Read Psalm 35 and you'll see what I mean. Also, though, this is where it becomes very important. In Isaiah 58, fasting is intrinsically connected to doing justice, caring for the poor, and providing for the hungry. These things are seen in our society or in the society about things are, things are unjust. The poor is needed. The hungry are going hungry. God, what do we do? We fast and we gain God's perspective. We ask, who is God in this case? And then after the fast, we move forward in a godly action. You see why, just even offhand, if this is what fasting is connected to, to turn it now into something to where you highlight yourself, is incredibly misguided. When it comes to fasting, there are a couple things. Um, historically, fasting was turned into, it was never commanded, but it was turned into something which good Jews and good Pharisees did regularly, usually Mondays and Thursdays. 
In fact, the Didache, which is a Christian document written very, very early on, said that Christians would fast, I think, Wednesdays and Fridays to distinguish themselves from the Pharisees. I might have the days wrong, but there are actually different days that Christians adopted in praying in order to differentiate themselves from the Pharisees, but it was still known as a practice, as a habit you would have. This, we think, is what Jesus is talking about, not necessarily spontaneous fasting or something in your personal life, but he's commenting on the practice of the fasting times. In fact, we see this show up in the parable that was actually mentioned this morning, as a matter of fact. The Pharisee stood by himself and prayed, God, I thank you that I'm not like other people, robbers, evildoers, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week and give a tenth of all I get in Luke. What he's referring to are the traditional habitual times that good Jews, quote-unquote, would fast in the week. That became a tradition that became binding instead of the intent of the law. So what does Jesus say about it? Well, obviously, he says a couple things. He says, don't disfigure your face, that their fasting may be seen by others. Same thing as prayers. During the time of fasting, They would come out and obviously be in pain and agony going, I'm fasting for the sake of God and I'm suffering and I'm hungry. Maybe not so obvious, but it seems like it was fairly obvious to be seen by others. Truly, Jesus says, they've received their reward. In fact... But Jesus almost seems to imply that he says, when you fast, notice Jesus never commands fasting, but he expects it as a behavior. Same as almsgiving, same as prayer. When you fast, anoint your head and wash your face. Now, I think most likely he's talking simply about personal hygiene. Don't do anything that's, that's different. Don't let anyone see that's what you're doing. But in fact, the, the phrase, anoint your head and wash your face, anointing with oil... There might be a wordplay there where anointing your, your head with oil is a sign of celebration. You do that when you're festive or you do that when there's a celebration. So almost what Jesus is saying here is don't take something which is meant to be something that you're doing when you're mourning or responding to something serious that they're twisting into their own game. I want you to turn it not only something that no one notices, but in your own head and heart, I want you to turn it into a celebration. Anoint your head, wash your face, be happy and be glad that you get to fast, that your fasting may not be seen by others, but by your Father who is in secret. And may your Father who sees in secret will reward you. This isn't about condemning fasting in public. This isn't about condemning fasting letting others know. This is about the motive behind which you, why you do what you do. And that matters. Are you doing it to honor God, to engage God directly in whatever's going on? Or are you doing it for the sake of others? In fact, a definition I came across for hypocrisy is turning a sacred moment into a moment of self. I like that definition a lot. Attribute it, but I'm not sure where I found it from. I found it in my own notes. So wherever this is from, I didn't come up with it, but I'm not sure who said it. So I'm not this smart. Hypocrisy, turning a moment, a sacred moment into a moment of self. This is something that preachers struggle with, something that people who serve publicly struggle with. It's my job to point you to God. It's something that we all struggle with who is in front of people. I like it when I get feedback. I like it whenever I'm praying and someone calls. I, I like it. It's hard to struggle with this. The question is, for those who are not as obvious a temptation as those who serve or those who are in public or anyone, heads of ministry, I'm not just talking about my job, 
What is it that you struggle with that is a sacred moment that you want to turn into a sacred moment of yourself? Take this back to the temptations of Jesus, even. And I'm thinking particularly about don't put God to the test. How many faux fleeces (laughs) of Gideon must you put in front of God that you're really saying, this is a test of if I believe in God or not, but I'm not going to admit that. What sacred moments are we tempted to turn into a moment of self? In what ways are we tempted to turn our direct engagement, worship of God, not only away from Him, but possibly worse, into right back to worshiping who we are, and our lives, and ourselves, and maybe not even our specific lives, but something which God is intrinsically a part of and should be worshipped in. How many times we ride the line of praising ourselves as opposed to God for our ministries in the church, for our eldership and deaconate and ministers even. What in the church do we want to turn back around to ourselves instead of turning it all to God? Now, I want to say two things about fasting specifically. One, this is a touchy subject, If you want to practice this, I recommend that if you ever have a conversation about it, that children and teens and such, especially those that have any sort of anxiety or body issues, anything that can get in the way of unbenefiting yourself as opposed to benefiting yourself, this is something we have to talk about. I recommend if anyone wants to try this, you have that talk with them, do it safely and do it healthily. Second of all, I do invite you to do that. I do invite you to fast, not just in response to things, but maybe I invite you to fast. If you haven't done it before, (laughs) it's hard to describe, but it's valuable. But do it healthily. If you have concerns about it, see your doctor, and there are ways of doing things that are beneficial. About these things in general, though, I want to make a couple comments about this whole section of fasting and disciplines. One... Feelings are to be felt, and feelings are okay. I've had this talk with several people this week about how every feeling that we have are reflective of God. Feelings are to be felt, and feelings you have about things are okay. But like anything else that Jesus talks about specifically, feelings and our motivations are not to be used for our own attention. There's a big difference there. It's okay to seek out help and empathy. It's not okay to seek out attention, for that's what Jesus says is truly your reward. The whole point of this thing is focusing on our own righteousness, dishonors Christ, and dishonors God. As I mentioned several times, the point of our disciplines, the point of our worship, should be directly engaging God himself, first as individuals, and then as the body of Christ. Spiritual disciplines, as I just said, are engaged with God. And finally, motive matters. And this is why it's so dangerous. Someone can have the wrong motives, and no one know except them and God but they and God know. And God says there is no reward for someone whose motive is constantly in the wrong place. The thing is about the Sermon on the Mount is that this is a collection of Jesus' teachings. There is a flow to it, which I'll come up with at the end, but there isn't really a good transition between this and the next section. But I purposely did that because we tend to stop in certain places and I like to kind of break the arcs and help us think about how things flow together big picture. So there's, I'm admitting textually, outliningly, exegetically, if that's the question, there's not really a good arc between this last section and this section, but I'm preaching both to help us break some of those traditional arcs. Whether that matters to you or not, take it where you will. 
Jesus continues, Do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth, where moths and vermin destroy, where thieves break in and steal. But store up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where moths and vermin do not destroy, where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. The eye is the lamp of the body. If your eyes are healthy, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eyes are unhealthy, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light within you is darkness, how great is that darkness? No one can serve two masters. Either you will hate the one and love the other, or you will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. This has been, like most scriptures, abused in some ways over the years, but also the plain meaning is also one of the most obvious meanings. Where do you put value? Where do you put security? Where do you put importance? What do you focus on? This is really about Jesus talking not just about possessions. Is it okay to have possessions? Yes. Is it okay to have a savings account? Yes. Jesus is talking about that, which two things. One starts to detract from your spiritual benefit, but also then two, that which tempts you to take your focus and value and security off of God. What I think Jesus is really trying to say, and I actually did that this from Scott McKnight, he says, possessions are mysteriously tempting. Live simply and trust God. Now, how easy is that to actually do? Especially in a society as blessed as we are. What he's saying here is also addressing something which is traditionally Jewish, but also which has crept into our society, known as the health and wealth gospel, the prosperity gospel. There is a line of thinking directly from Deuteronomy 28, which is the beginning of the covenant of blessing and cursing, by the way, that if you obey God, you will receive material blessings, you will receive financial blessings, you will receive great wealth, and you will receive great property. This was, these are all signs of Jewish wealth. We think that today, some people, and maybe even some of us think that today, if we're obeying God, He will reward us with possessions, with things, with finances. That's preached all too often today and believed far too easily. What this is focusing on, as I said, is the focus of your heart and realizing that which can tempt us and bring our focus away from God. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. It's self-explanatory, but man, talk about something that's actually hard to live out. Where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. The most direct question I can ask you is this. What in this life, if something happened to it, might you be in danger of losing your relationship with God, meaning you walk away from God? And I'm not just talking about things. I'm talking about people. I'm talking about children. I'm talking about family. I'm talking about anything which is temporary. That's a hard question. I say that with five children of my own. That would be the thing. That I pray if something did, I won't. But it would be, if there's anything that would, it would be that. What in this life that is temporary, 
in this world, if you lost it, you would walk away from God? That's a hard question. There are no easy answers. But this is what Jesus is talking about. Do not focus on the temporary things of life. As Roland said, there's a difference between placing your value and security in a temporary life on earth versus the relationship that ultimately prevails into eternity. Granted. But that relationship should be tempered by the relationship with God. And the security of knowing that relationship is secure in Him. That's hard. Let's pause for a moment and just say, that's hard. That stinks. That stinks to consider. But it's true. Psalm 95, as I mentioned several times, speaks into this. He says, For you, God, are a great God, the King above all other gods. What becomes a God? That which we place ultimate value in. That as long as we have this, then we will be happier, safer, secure, happy in God. If there's anything in there that's not God, that is what Jesus is addressing. What your treasure is, there your heart will be also. He's saying, have your treasure be in the righteousness of God, the ultimate treasure. And from that, he talks about the eye is the lamp of the body. If your eyes are healthy, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eyes are unhealthy, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light is within you is darkness, how great is that darkness? Now, if you read about this, and I can't remember what Mount says about it, you'll find that there's a historical debate about extramission or intermission. That doesn't matter. Basically, the debate is whether this is talking about the light that goes into your body through your eyes or the light that comes out of your body through your eyes, metaphorically speaking. That's a valid question. I think, because of the terms, if your eyes are healthy, your whole body will be full of light. Therefore, your eyes are reflective and illuminating on the outside world what is really within you and within your heart. So basically what I'm saying is, through your eyes, through your body, which is a lamp, you see the world according to what your body is full of. What light, what kind of light, what values, what possessions, what you worship within you which affects the light that you look through. Does that make sense? What this is talking about is how you look at things. Once again, the focus and priority, priority of what you focus, what you worship on, what you value, and how you see things through that lens, or biblically speaking, through that lamp. He's saying if your eyes are healthy, your whole body will be full of light. If you're full of, if you're full, your body is full of godly light, then how you see things, how you look at things, will be healthy. But if your eyes are unhealthy, your whole body is full of darkness. If the light within you is darkness, how great is that darkness? Because it distorts everything you look at. There's a line, there's a verse, <laughs> not just a line, but a verse in Titus, which says, To the pure all things are pure, to the defiled all things are defiled. Now that has its own context, but the principle remains. How you look at things based on what you value, what your focus is, determines how you see that thing. And he goes on here to make another point. These words are actually not the traditional Greek words for healthy and unhealthy. Actually, what they mean is stingy, unhealthy, and generous, healthy. So he's actually making a callback, a point to the possessions phrase that he just talked about. Not just about health or not, but about generous or not. What about healthily perspective, healthy perspective or unhealthy perspective on your things, on your economy of things. 
But he goes on to clarify. He says, no one can serve two masters. Either you will hate the one and love the other, or you will be devoted to the one and despise the other. We know this, many of us who have tried to worship both God and <coughs> something. It doesn't work very well. Many of us have realized that we've been worshiping the wrong thing and realized we need to go back to God. You cannot serve both God and money. Now, this word money is the word mammon. Fun fact for you, this actually comes from the Hebrew word or Jewish word, for amon, which actually means trust. So it's a play on words. Mammon is anything that's possessive, anything, that, anything that's a physical possession or money. What this is talking about, as I've said many times already, what this is ultimately talking about is what you value in your heart, where your treasure is, that determines how you see, which affects how you trust God. And where you value what you worship in your heart, inside you, what your priorities are, affects if you indeed trust God or not. And this makes sense. We started out in the Sermon on the Mount by the Beatitudes picture, right? This is the image of the kingdom citizen. The kingdom citizen is supposed to have the ethic from beyond, bringing the kingdom there, which reshapes how you view these certain things of society. Oaths, divorce, lying, murder, right? He goes on from there and says, in addition to that, how it reshapes your view, it reshapes then why you give, why and how you pray, how and why you fast. All that is affected by your priorities in the first place. All that is affected by your focus in the first place. If you're doing it simply to receive temporal blessings, your focus on all the rest of the sermon will be misguided. If you're doing it simply to appease God that He may not bother you or take away what you have, your motive is wrong. This is the flow I talked about. These things can only be true and lived out in connection to everything He just talked about with the proper focus and priority. With the proper order of worship, which the Lord's Prayer, by the way, helps us reorder. This also connects, I'm not going to talk about it today very much, but this also connects to, as I said, our trust of what, whether that is God or not. But also this impacts, pay attention not to that slide, I'll go back to it. This also impacts what comes next. I'm going to touch on this today, I'm going to expound upon it next week. So if I don't cover this very well today, I know. But this affects this. Therefore, I tell you, out of everything I've just said, therefore I tell you, do not worry about your life, what you will eat or drink, about your body, what you will wear. Is life not more than food and the body more than clothes? Look at the birds of the air, Jesus says. They do not sow or reap or store away in barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not much more valuable than they? Can any of you, by worrying, add a single hour to your life? No, but you can take away some of the most important, can you? And why do you worry about clothes? See how the flowers of the field grow. They do not labor or spin. Yet I tell you that not even Solomon in all his splendor was dressed like one of these. If that is how God clothes the grass of the field, which is here today and tomorrow thrown into the fire, catch bread from the Lord's Prayer just there. That which you need today, right? Your Heavenly Father knows that you need them. But seek first His kingdom and His righteousness. First seek first His kingdom and His relationship with you, and your relationship with Him, yes? And all these things will be given to you as well. 
Therefore, do not worry about tomorrow, for tomorrow will worry about itself. Each day has enough trouble of its own. Keep in mind the big flow of things here. Jesus was tempted and lived without bread. Lived and faced the temptation of trusting in himself as opposed to God. Trusting his interpretation of who God is in his life. Trusting if God would see him through things. Jesus has now been teaching the proper Beatitudes person. Blessed are the poor in spirit, the meek, the righteous. Not those who seek after the wrong priority. Everything in the Sermon on the Mount connects and affects each other. I like what Josh said this morning. If uh, you're teaching a new Christian, don't start with the Sermon on the Mount. It is too in your face. That, by the way, many Christians don't even take it seriously enough to try to live up to. The question is, from this section, both fasting, disciplines, and also from this section about possessions and materials is this question, whose reward matters most? And maybe the better question is, do we believe it? Whose reward matters most? Not to the sense of why you do what you do, but also, if in this life you don't have, fill in the blank, is God's reward enough for you? I'm not going to pretend that many of us it's very hard to say yes because of what's in front of us. We know we ought to say yes. But let's be honest, it's hard sometimes to say yes. That God's reward is enough. What are the points of this section? Remember at the very beginning of this series I talked about um, the more gospel, that Jesus wants more righteousness, more Christ-likeness, more God-likeness. The whole point of these sections specifically are contrasting a couple things. They're contrasting the world's more gospel. Meaning, what is it that you need more of? You need more money. You need more fame. You need more cosmetics. You need more nice clothes. Um, <laughs> Amy and I were watching a show last night and a, what was the ad? It was for silk pajamas, Right? So first of all, we were making fun of, you know, the, the, the woman was laying around leisurely in bed and we we're like, yeah, who has time for that? But then two, is leisurely silk pajamas and we were like, yeah, what fantasy world do they live in? Not ours. Plus, I don't think I look good in sink pink, but a sink pink silk, but that's a whole other story. Or pink silk for that, or sink pink, or whatever. <laughs> Just because it's true, man, you don't have to rub it in. <laughs> Just for that, but never mind. That's the world's more gospel, though. You need more things. You need more money. You need more financial security. You need more happiness. You need more whatever. Now, are those things inherently bad? No. Is it good to be financially secure? Yes. But do you place your trust ultimately in them is the question. The world says you better because there's nothing else. The thing is, this is where I'm going to start meddling, even the church has a wrong more gospel. How are we succeeding as a church? We need more members. We need more giving. We need more ministries. We need more programs. Can even baptisms become an idol? Yes. If that's what we place our trust in, 
for how God will reward us or if we're doing our mission. Yes. Now, are baptisms good? Yes! Should we be pursuing people being baptized in Christ? Yes! Should we be pursuing people living and, and living more like God? Yes! But are they what we trust in as a church? Are we trusting in the fact that God is working in and through us for his mission? There is a difference. One ought to lead to the other. True. But if our priority is one, is wrong. It will affect us. What the Sermon on the Mount is talking about is Jesus' true, more gospel, which is through Christ, He wants and desires and creates in us the ability to have more right relationship with God in our life, more trust in God the Father, more security in who He is in our life and where He's leading us and be able to show more grace and more faith and more truth and more reflection of who God is in our lives. Not by what we do, but by what God does in and through us. Which more do we really want? Holy Father, we ask you to reorder our priorities and focus and that our more line up with the more that you want to give us. Lord, I praise you for the things of this world that you give us, money and clothes and entertainment and things. I praise you for the missions of the church, for our ministries, for our baptisms, for our members. But God, I pray nothing and no one overrule or overtake our first and foremost love of wanting to know and trust you more. I do pray for anyone here who wants the true more relationship with you that the world and even the church alone cannot offer, I pray that they can come to you this day. But God, I pray also that your church intentionally refocus our minds and hearts, refocus our treasure to be you and you alone. Work in us, God, and may we show the world not our more or its more, but who you are more and more each day. In Jesus' name we pray and trust you with these things. Amen.